You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. This is Giles Parkinson, editor of Renew Economy. Joining me, um, as he usually does this time of the week, David Leach from ITK. How are you, David? Uh, Hi, Giles. I'm well and hello to all our visitors and also to our special guest this week. Yes, um, I'd like to welcome Adrian Merrick. Adrian, um, you're the head of Energy Locals, the new community-owned retailer, but you're also the former head of retail at one of the big three utilities, Energy Australia. Um, Thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you. Good morning. Look, um, look, it is great having Adrian on board because one of the things we're going to focus on today is the National um, Energy Guarantee, this new policy unveiled by the Coalition Government a week ago. Um, we're going to try and unpack that. David, I'm just going to go quickly over some of the main points. Basically, the idea of this was to what well, try and sort of um, short circuit the political um, issues, uh, um, proposing a guarantee of reliability imposed on the retailers, proposing a guarantee on emissions on the retailers, a whole bunch of questions about um, its implementation, very few details, a few red flags which we'll get into. I guess it's been sold on the fact that it got through the coalition party room. The fact that a policy gets through the coalition party room, does that make it a good policy? Uh, not at all. Uh, and the, but I think it has been, it's been sold on the basis that it got through the, par, um, the party room. But in fact, it's received a, a mixed amount of support. There have been quite a few people that have come out in support of the policy and therefore I think that's the basis on which we should think about it, that there are there are pros and cons to this approach as there are to many others. Indeed, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the fact that it did get through the party room, the party room has rejected um, the carbon price and renewable energy target, the clean energy target and emissions trading scheme. This is the next best thing. Adrian, over to you. Um, the fact that it got through the party room, um, does that make it good enough? I don't think it makes it good enough, but the fact that there's a policy um, is, I mean, that this has to be a start because everyone's been wondering what the energy policy is in this country for a very long time. So the fact that someone's come out and said, hey, why don't we have one and it looks something like this, um, at least is a position for us to um, start the debate from and say, well, well, let's look at it. And I think a lot of people are looking at it now saying, Great, and you know we, we'll get into whether it's a good one or whether it isn't. But um, mm. you know we have to at least recognise, I guess, um, one silver lining here, which is that we we have now got a proposal on the table, and it's been a very, very, very long time coming. Okay, well let's get into some of the details because what worries me is that the way it is portrayed in the media is the fact that okay, well this is a potential breakthrough, therefore anyone who speaks against it must be playing politics. Um, I think there's more than that to it, David. Um, the big three things I guess which have been um, questioned is its ability to actually address um, emissions, um, and I guess it's only working through a very modest emission scenario at the moment, um, and that's probably because of the coalition party room, um, its impact on renewables and also its question on price. Um, what are the big red flags for you? Well, the first, I listened to a, um, a podcast run by the Solar Council and John Grimes, and uh, there were some good points made in that. I think the first thing that we all need to clear up is what happens to the existing renewable energy scheme. One of the worries is that um, new renewables projects created after 2020 
might still be able to go into the market for renewable energy certificates. And of course, to the extent that they exceed the target, they would force the price down to zero. So something that the government, and, and the reason why that's an immediate problem is because while that issue's been sorted out, people who are thinking of starting new projects might tend to put them on hold. So I think one of the first things the government could do if it wanted to uh, would be to clarify that new renewable projects started after 2020 um, will, will be zero surrender. I mean, they won't be able to qualify for renewable energy certificates created under the current scheme. That'd be a start. Okay. Um, Adrian, what, what, what about you? Um, I was actually looking through a Bloomberg um, renewable energy, uh, Bloomberg, um, a Bloomberg um, a new energy finance document, and it said, uh, what we don't know, we don't know what technologies will be categorised as dispatchable. We don't know what type of contracts will be accepted as part of the guarantees. We don't know whether the contracts will be based on rated capacity or generation. We don't know whether synchronous generation will be specifically required. We don't know how much of each retailer's peak demand forecast will be covered, and we don't know whether retailers will be able to utilise behind the media capacity. An awful lot we don't know. Yeah, and I think the timing of the announcement is is pretty curious, um, to be honest. I mean, the ACCC came out with the prelim- preliminary findings from their uh, inquiries. They spent six and a half months taking a lot of submissions from people, and they kind of turned around and said, look, the uh, the market's not operating that well, and the concentration in the generation market is, is leading to higher wholesale prices, which means higher bills for customers. And then in a matter of days later, we've potentially got something on our hands here in terms of policy that actually probably just strengthens um, the control of those in the market that have large generation. So I, I think the you know the, the, the timing, the, the the sequence of events is is really curious. I think the the timing of the letter from the ES ESB, uh, the um, uh, Security Board, Energy Security Board, um, which I, I think most of us had kind of got an impression that this was a board to um, make sure that the recommendations from the Finco review got implemented rather than come up with their own policy. Um, uh, has has um, put this forward um, to the PM, and he's he's run with it pretty quickly. So um, I, I, that well, does well, raise so, a bunch so, of questions. So I, I think there are two big points you've made there, Adrian. The, the most important one is around the uh, increasing power given to the big gen tailors, uh, and the second one is the politicisation, if you like, of the Energy Security Board. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of us feel that John Pierce has got his h- fingerprints all over this, but never mind that. Let's just clarify that John Pearce is the chair of the Australian Energy Market Commission, um, the, th- the key rulemaking body, um, who has not exactly been applauded for his forward thinking and his alacrity in making decisions over the past few years. Um, well, I agree with that, but let's not play the man. Let's play the issue. So I think the overwhelming thing myself, uh, or the, firstly, is the emissions target that's actually set. Although the... Uh, advice from the um, Energy Security Board to the government did mention a renewables amount. It utterly depends on the Paris target that the government actually adopts. If we adopt a two degree target, most people think that means 45 or 50 percent renewables by 2030. So until we've got some details about the carbon emissions trajectory, discussion about how much renewables will emerge under the policy is is reasonably um, futile. Well, I guess on, to the extent that the coalition has actually made it um, absolutely clear that they're not going to move beyond the um, the Paris um, their, their current um, target. In fact, what the um, what the ESB was asked to model was actually even lower than what the current target is. It's a 26% below 2005 levels. Um, 
So that's at the bottom end of the range, and they've indicated that they've had absolutely no intention of changing that whatsoever. Here's where we get to the politics, because if um, uh, the Labor Party, uh, with a higher target, in line with a two degrees target, which actually Australia has signed up for, uh, uh, could agree to this policy if they thought it would be effective, effective and then just raise the target. And this gets us back to the whole uncertainty issue again, and it's why I personally uh, prefer policies that uh, guarantee the price for new renewables immediately. And this is the fantastic strength of these reverse auctions, you know. And it's the same strength that, in fact, we get from the uh, tax break in the investment tax credit in the United States. Once a, a project is approved under that policy, it's got complete certainty. And this means that its cost of capital is low and the price it can charge customers is low. This emissions trajectory target is another variation of a carbon price and emissions intensity. I mean, you can put whatever label you want. What it means is that the future trajectory is going to have uncertainty in it, uh, which is an uncertainty is bad for prices. It's very hard for um, generators actually to make any decisions, uh, long-term decisions on this anyway, because um, in, in, interestingly, the ESB has actually asked, been asked to model um, do their modelling on the basis of a 2030 target and then, in, and, and, and then assume no change beyond that. So I'm not too sure what possible certainty that can actually bring to the market. And Adrian, you, look, you've worked for the big utilities and, 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 and now a small um, player. Um, the fact that there is this uncertainty, uh, the fact that this market, um, as it will be, will won't be very transparent. And in fact, it just will be played around, as far as we can tell, through a series of sort of caps and hedges, which are sort of financial instruments, which are all but invisible. And um, my understanding is that one of the concerns is that this just makes just plays basically into the hands of the big players. Yeah, look, I, th I think there are three key concerns that that scream out at me from having gone through the um, the eight-page letter, which is what we've got to work on so far. And I mean, the, the first, which uh, is, isn't really in the letter, but it sort of falls out of it pretty quickly afterwards, is will, will the states even get on board? You know, we're, we're left in this very cu curious situation where we have a national energy market that consists of every state that is, is reasonably able to be interconnected in some way. Um, and yet we don't have a single regulator um, across um, all of those states. Uh, we don't really have a true policy even at this particular point in time because a bunch of states have gone on their own and said hey we're going to do our own thing and some of those states have come out and said actually we don't really like the look at this um so you know how this policy will even properly stand up on a national energy market basis um, as opposed to being just another layer of complexity and regulation with a bunch of local state derogations really remains to be seen and the second key question is, you know, our customers going to save money? So this is a key thing, and this is what um, every every politician right now wants to come up with a plan for lower power prices. And it's it has become one of the biggest um, talking points, one of the biggest issues that every everyone's uh, every politician out there is trying to trying to fight over. Now, of course, there are some concerns around reliability, um, especially after what's happened in South Australia over the last um, twelve months or so. But you know, the, the question of saving money is, is huge out there and customers are doing it tough after price increases that are completely unjustified in a market with flat or falling demand. Um, so we've got, a, you know, we've got a letter that says customers are going to save $100 a year. Um, I can't quite reconcile that at the moment. I can't quite get my head around how they've come up with that number. Um, well, they've actually admitted that they didn't come up with that number. It was just a notional idea that hadn't actually been modelled at all. So. <laughs> well, there you go. It's a nice round number. And now, you know, it has three digits. That's a, that's a good start. It was better than one with two. Um, 
And then there's you know some other assertions that are made in there around the um, the reduction in the wholesale price of you know, 20 to 25 percent per annum. Well, that you know on a compound basis that leads to an exceptionally low wholesale price, which is just a, a bit of a joke. No, nothing's going to run for that. Um, We're only going to get a reduction in wholesale price if we get a new supply. I think we all understand that. And it's very hard to see how a lot of new how we're going to get a lot of new supply, and unless either of these guarantees in, induces it. That's right. And if Would, if, if, if you're you know if, you, if you're an investor looking at the Australian market, then or frankly any market, it's kind of hard to see how anyone would be investing in traditional baseload fossil fuel baseload right now. And yet this policy is kind of driving us more towards that. Um, but the time it would take for someone to get their head around that investment decision, think about it, the planning process, etc., get something built and online, um, I'm sure this policy will be dead and buried um, before that time ever comes. So, you know, the, the reality is money is still going to flow into new renewables. The question is, how much is a policy like this going to make in extra money for the large generators um, because they're able to really just milk um, some aging assets even more than they are currently able to do and how much a customer is going to pay for the level of risk that um, the retailers are now going to be required to take on through the neg um, and they're going to have to back that risk you know through a variety of instruments possibly more than is actually needed more than are, than are actually needed um, for the customer's demand and of course that just adds to the total cost of wholesale um, which of course just flows to customers so yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and your, your point that this um, uh, really in, in, entrenches the oligopoly is one that's been made by quite a lot of people. And I think it is something that needs to be taken very seriously. And indeed, we don't have a definition of reliable. I mean, one of the things I think, or dispatchable, one of the things I think we need to be crystal clear is that because you've got renewables don't, doesn't mean you can't have a dispatchable, reliable system. And in fact, that's the whole task of the higher renewables penetration is to make sure that we bring dispatchability along with it. And so the exact way in which the some new government body or some new panel is going to sit around and judge the recipe uh, as, as it was put, uh, of reliability and emissions is, is I think, uh, you know, <laughs> going to lead to a lot of confusion. And as someone else said, are you really going to get your retailer licence uh, disallowed just because you haven't complied with the policy? I mean, there'll be so much room for the for the existing Gentiles to milk it. Yeah, and that's that's written all over um, th this letter so far, which is, you know, that there are lines such as, um, it will be expected that the large uh, generators um, will, who have access to more generation, um, will offer that to retailers who need um, greater access to generation. Now, you know, it's an I have an expectation of many things. I have an expectation of having a full head of hair. It still hasn't happened. Um, and every morning I wake up thinking it might have happened that night. It still hasn't. And this is a huge expectation. And I think what's really interesting is, um, you know, the, the letter talks a lot about compliance on retailers. Um, but then it talks about sort of just general expectations of large generators. Now, if retailers are on the hook um, for these obligations, and you know there is there is, there are license conditions attached to that, um, if you're running a large generator, you, you obviously have a commercial arrangement in place with that retailer. Um, but there there is no regulatory risk to you breaching your agreement with that retailer. Um, through whatever means, through forced outages and all the other things that, that just happen now and again and seem to happen now and again. 
Um, so you know, if you if you do own a large generation fleet, this could this could absolutely be manipulated in a way that would would just make life extremely uncomfortable um, for a lot of retailers that don't have access to that generation capacity. I think another issue too is just this lack of um, this. Uh, well, I, I think what David just sort of said um, before about the um, the emissions. Um, if we don't have long term emissions um, targets, then I just don't see how that signal of actually bringing in new generations is going to be. If you bring in end up, end up investing in gas or coal, um, even if it's in a new plant, um, it could still theoretically be changed. So who's going to actually? Um, make those investments with the risk that the target could be ramped up and therefore the carbon risk come, comes through. The same thing with the technology risk. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they define um, reliability, whether it's going to be through synchronous generation, which is what they actually tried to do in South Australia with their energy security target, which they've now pretty much dropped. Um, it was defined as a synchronous generation rather than, um, than other sorts, and it was really thought to be a bit of a kick in the pants for battery storage and just a leak up for, for, for gas and would cause um, prices to remain high or even go higher. So um, there's just a lot of things to be um, unpacked there, David. Uh, there. There is. And another point we should mention is um, transparency or the declining amount of it. Uh, the use of bilateral contracts, uh, I think, uh, may mean there's a lack of transparency, lack of, I mean, the average the pool, to the extent that people purchase from the pool, it's going to be its average emissions that's going to be, and that, that itself is, is, is capable of being uh, moved around at, at any time. So there's issues around that. At the same time, we should focus on the positives as well. Uh, and the positives is that if um, a high enough standard is set for the renewables guarantee, we, we, it, it could work to induce a lot of new supply. It's a policy that, that arguably um, could be made to work, but I still end up coming back to preferring the state reverse auction model uh, as providing more certainty to everyone and, and ending up with lower prices. But I stand by the, by the main point of all of this, that unless we get new supply of one sort or another, we're not going to get lower prices. And in fact, I think it's misleading to think that we're going to get substantially lower prices over the next few years at the, at the generation level. The gas price is high, the coal price is high, renewables, uh, wind and PV do need to be firmed up somehow or other. And there is a firming cost, which people who support renewables like me have to factor in. And when you do factor it in, the, the price is comparable, in my opinion, to current gas and coal prices, just comparable. They're on a level playing field, more or less, at the moment. Adrian, what does this mean? You are a new retailer, you're dealing with customers. Customers are facing the prospect, as David says, that there's really going to be no meaningful drop, uh, if any, over the next two, five, 15, 10, 15 years. What are they going to do? Because they've got other alternatives now, haven't they? They've got rooftop solar and um, possibly battery storage, um, which does actually reduce their bills, which does lower the cost. So even if the whole cost of the whole grid doesn't come down, individual options will coming down. What does this mean for a business like you? And what does this mean for consumers? Look, uh, starting with customers, what do they want? They want primarily, I mean, firstly, they want reliable energy. And I think that is just the hygiene factor. That's a given. And, you know, when, when it becomes unreliable, that's that becomes a, a major talking point, a major concern that how the, how the hell can we live in a 21st century um, modern economy and the lights um, the lights keep going out. So that that is just a given. Um, very closely behind that is people are looking for cheaper power. This is um, seen as a tax by customers. And 
it's um, I've heard it described in in years gone by as a as a human right, um, and I probably wouldn't go quite that far, but but customers do see this as just a, a tax on their cost of living, um, and and quite rightly so because it's it's a homogenous product, it's a commodity, it's invisible, and they've been getting um, in some cases um, screwed because you know they'll be on a particular rate and then suddenly the rate will change without them really realizing um, because they just didn't read the enough detail in a particular letter. Um, so the the cost increases and the the way the market has gone about. Um, winning and trying to retain and grow value from each customer has um, has led customers into that position. Uh, and then probably just based on the, the reaction we get from customers on a daily basis, um, cleaner energy is, is third down the list. And I think if you ticked off the first two, then everyone says, yeah, that would be great. But the... Um, the emphasis is on reliable energy that is going to become cheaper. And if, if that can all be clean as well, um, if we can just make it cleaner at the same time, then happy days. Let's go for that. That's brilliant. Um, Adrian, do you have a, quite a bunch of business customers in, in your current About 5% so far. We haven't, um, we haven't gone out and actively um, tried to engage with businesses as yet. It's just because it's one of the many, many things on the to-do list. Um, and we just, yeah, we just haven't got around to it yet. Um, but yeah, about 5% have found their ways to us. And, and if you, I mean, I'm interested in the behind the meter potential at the business level. I mean, I wondered from also bearing in mind your time at Energy Australia, whether whether you look at demand charges that businesses pay, uh, I'm always wondering about the potential for either demand management or battery storage to end up taking quite a place and reducing those demand charges for business customers in particular. Do you have any yeah, thoughts the, on that? No, there's huge opportunities for that. And we've got to remember that an awful lot of small business um, small businesses are renting. So that brings a, a, you know, its own um, particular sort of quirks for a customer in terms of how they can take better control of their of their energy bills and, and through the implementation of devices that would probably save them. But if, they, if they're running a small shop or pop-up or whatever it might be and, and they're going to be gone again in 12 or 18 months, then... Um, it's not always worthwhile, but for those that have a longer-term lease or own their own premises, then um, solar has not yet been as widely embraced by small businesses. P partly for that reason, and partly just because everyone running a small business, um, we're all busy people, so we we don't probably take the time to think about it quite so much. Um, but aside from um, aside from just local generation, yeah, completely. I mean, there are there are ways. Uh, so voltage regulation, for example, um, very easy bit of demand side management. Um, it's you know, a box that sits there next to the meter. Don't even know it's there, um, but it is. If you do have solar, it's it's probably getting you um, more than you than you would otherwise get uh, for your, for a feed-in tariff because um, it means that more is being exported to the grid, um, a little bit more, and it's also reducing your demand charges because it's just shaving off those peaks. So there are, and, and that's actually not an expensive solution for many businesses that tends to have a one to two year payback in in many cases. So. There are a bunch of um, solutions out there that will, will absolutely help customers. But you know, to Giles's point, can customers take control and start to say, well, stuff this, um, I'm just gonna uh, get solar and eventually um, storage when they, when they feel the time is right for them. We, we hear it every day. Um, customers are coming to us in, in droves at the moment saying um, that we see you've got a smart meter offer, we guarantee you to get it installed within a particular time. Um, at a at a cheap rate compared to what their solar installers do, so they go great. Just get this installed because then I'm getting solar put on this roof because I just want to screw the um, the tr traditional 
part of the market. Um, and that sentiment is growing, as you'd imagine. Now, the, the, the challenge is not everyone's able to access that for a variety of reasons. Well, that's part of the issue too, and you say, say that people are sort of saying, well, you know, screw the retailers and screw the utilities, possibly because they felt they've been screwed um, um, over the last few years. And this is something which is identified by the CSIRO and the networks themselves in their big report last year, which basically was that if we're not going to get reform, if we're not going to fundamentally actually reduce the price of the grid, um, then we are going to see these desertions. Um, I was sitting on a plane on the way down to the uh, Tesla big battery opening a couple of weeks ago and there was a solar installer sitting next to me. He came from the um, mid-north coast of um, New South Wales and he said he'd taken 30 uh, customers off the grid um, in the last six months. That's 30 just around Coffs Harbour and areas, you know, in town and just outside of town, taking off the grid, which is just extraordinary. So if that's replicated across, um, then that's going to have major issues and really... That, that's far and by for you, isn't it, Giles? When, you know, no, it's Coffs Harbour. Coffs Harbour. Harbour. When, when, when you're catching the plane <laughs> down and the two people in the seat, instead of talking about gold or iron ore or, or the football, they're talk the one, one's the editor of Renew Economy and the other one's a solar installer. That's <laughs> <laughs> definitely... Look, I've met some other people as well. <laughs> Look, we're going to see more of it. We're going we're gonna to see more of this. Customers are going to... Um, defect from the grid and you know it'll be a pretty I mean look this is a this is a challenge for the regulators and I, I know that they are working this through and uh, the you know, there is a, a horrible world one day where people really do their homework to be able to get off grid um, and that's not just through spending a lot of capital on installing stuff that not everyone may be able to afford at this point in time but that's also just through very careful demand management being efficient in their use, you know, a variety of different things. And there's a there's a really dangerous world that potentially is going to exist where those people will just have to pay a tax because they're not paying their fair share of a grid that a declining number of people need to pay for. And well, that, that has been that has been canvassed, and just as many um, many um, households pay um, for sewage that um, does or doesn't go past, or, or, or whatever in front of them. Um, but I think the more germane point today, because that's a future worry, the more germane point today is that while electricity grid delivered electricity demand isn't growing because of higher prices and because of competition from behind the meter, uh, again, it makes it very difficult uh, for um, to get price down. Um, um, because be, uh, because the, the demand for new investment new investment has to force old investment out, and uh, that's that's yeah. Network write downs more generation. Yeah, yeah and it's certainly you know for the networks uh, they are also facing their own increasing regulatory pressures, and I, I don't think we should underestimate uh, the extra risk that owners of networks will see now their uh, protection. Uh, uh, from the Australian Competition Tribunal mm. has been removed. I mean, that may be good for prices, but it's, in, in, it's really the same sort of policies we saw in Venezuela, where the government doesn't like higher prices, so it changes the law to remove pri some right that private enterprise had. Uh, and, and, that's and that's exactly it. We seem to be going through this, centralized, this, this sort of centralised economy almost. It's back to the regulated markets of the 1980s. So I see Queensland's um, talking about starting its own retail business as well. I mean, if you're in private sector, you don't want to compete with the federal government owning, owning Snowy and, and, and Lumo and Red. You don't want to compete with the Queensland government owning a competing retailer. It's, it's unfair competition. I think we have to decide one model or the other. Yeah, that, and... It would be much better to decide that on a on a national energy market basis rather than state by state. It's it's we've already seen the Queensland government come out and do a bilateral um, deal with a single retailer, uh, 
um, that was all tied up around creation of I think about 100 new jobs in Queensland um, and access to lower wholesale prices um, through a, a joint venture that was that was started with the Queensland government. Um, you know, I think that that sort of thing is is pretty curious actually in a in a um, supposedly competitive market. Um, not necessarily a bad thing if that means that customers are able somehow to get access to um, slightly cheaper wholesale prices, albeit in the short term. But it would be much better for us just to say, right, how do we want this market to operate? Now, the, you know, the ACCC's further, the, the second half or the second two thirds of their um, of their review that are, are going to play out over the over the coming months after they've now come up with their prelim, preliminary fin findings um, will be interesting to, to watch. Uh, they have the potential to really influence a framework that will deliver the right type of competition. Um, you know, government ownership isn't always the most efficient way to do things. Um, it, it, it could be, and if, um, you know, if the government says we want to buy back a bunch of utilities, or which I, I don't think they should, um, because they'll probably be buying, be buying higher prices now than, than they, sh they should pay for them. Um, or if they said, let's actually start one of our own. Yeah, I think, I think you know, that's okay if that's a potential outcome, but we have to recognize that uh, government isn't always the best type of organization to run a commercial business. So you'd only do that if you're just going to re-regulate the entire thing and say, we're done with this, um, we shut down competition, everyone, everyone just sticks with where they are and you give us all your customers and off we go, which is effectively them buying people out. I, I just don't think that's going to happen, but I think the opportunity for more localised forms of government to get involved. And we've already seen that there's uh, a council in New South Wales that's put its, put its hand up and said, hey, we want to um, start a not-for-profit retailer. We've seen a couple of those go off in the UK um, as well, a couple of them um, pretty successfully. So, And I think California's full of them, aren't they? I mean, they, they have these like community-based uh, network uh, retailers that seem to be growing very, very yeah, quickly. Yeah, California and Germany, this, this model's existed in for years as well. So, uh, you know, the I mean, partly that was some... Um, why I founded Energy Locals was you know, expecting that the market would would tend to move that way. Um, I think that if you can if you can have those more local decisions and people feel as though they've got some sort of say in it, we've just um, we've just announced recently the um, partnership with Goulburn in New South Wales, where they're building a, um, a 1.2 megawatt solar farm. Um, they've got planning approval, and we'll buy the energy and offer it th um, through a tariff. So that means roughly half the bill will stay in the local area, and people can drive past. Um, the asset that they are helping to fund rather than wonder where on earth their energy might be coming from. And that's that's in a financial sense rather than a weekly amps um, sense, of course. But um, that, that sort of thing gives people control. And, you know, frankly, they can set what they want their wholesale price to be, which means the only other key variable in the cost stack for, for those customers is the network cost. That, that will make up 45% of, of the total bill. Um, so the vast majority of the remainder after the wholesale. And... If networks stop um, being silly buggers and trying to take the regulator to court when the regulator just puts a bit of pressure on them to be more efficient, um, then I think we, we should see a, a reasonable level of cost stability for customers or even cost reduction over time. Um, but we are reliant on the regulators to stop doing, uh, sorry, on the um, network companies to stop doing that. And it was really disappointing to see that, uh, that kick off in New South Wales over the, last, over the last few months. So, you know, customers are still exposed to that. And, you can't really imagine any customer-facing business thinking it's a good idea to go and take a regulator to court so you can charge your customers more money. Um, but that, you know, that's the world that these businesses are currently operating in. It's a sort of steady fixed rate of return, and if anyone tries to mess with our rate of return, we're going to take you to court. Um, that, that's, that's not the real world. 
Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up there because we've gone a bit over time. Look, thanks very much, Adrian, um, for joining us. Um, a, a real pleasure having you on board. Thank you. Um, no, great. Uh, look, David, just, just very quickly before we go, um, just is there some fundamental things that we should need to think about with the National Energy Guarantee before we go forward? I mean, I, I guess long-term emissions, making sure we get the design right to not rule out competition and not sort of, you know, thrust um, control into the incumbents. Um, anything else you can think of? Well, I'd like to see the states continue their reverse auction process because I think it provides extra competition into the market. So it's the way that that can be coordinated with the National Emissions Guarantee. And I must say that it, the advice has opened a dialogue on how that could be accommodated. Well, good. Here's hoping. David, thanks once again um, for your participation. Thanks to um, our uh, listeners. Um, please leave a review on iTunes or whatever. Thanks to our um, sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watches once again. And um, thank you both. Thank you. Cheers, Charles. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by What Watches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.